0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, I'm Mark Riley. And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? A, part two. Aladdin insane. OK, well, it's a good place to start, Bob. So, recorded between October 1972 and late January 1973. Recorded in London, New York and, naturally, Nashville. Mm. It's a bit strange, that. I mean, obviously, he was touring America at the time. Mm. It's very, very easy to think that, you know what David Bowie was like, Changes With The Wind and all that kind of stuff. It could have been a country and western album. I would have bought that.
2: I probably would have bought it as well, but I'm glad he didn't do it. No, so it's Bowie's sixth studio album. Goes to number one in the UK, number 17 in the States, so you feel like his career is just gaining a bit of traction over there. But before we get to the whole music of it, we must discuss the cover artwork, one of the greatest rock and roll sleeves. Gino, uh, you know, arguably, I would say my favourite sleeve
1: of all time. Is it uh, really? Yeah, I mean, do you know, he was weird. Uh, Brian Duffy, OK, we'll, we'll look at the history of it, but he took the photographs, and there's a great book which features all of the sessions uh, that he did with Bowie. Mm. Uh, but he met Tony DeVries when he was working at a solicitor's clerk, Godfrey Davies and Bat and uh, the client list did include Brian Duffy and so that's where the Bowie connection came in but early January 1973 the Mm. photo shoot took place now it is one of the greatest album covers of all time Mm. it's been called the Mona Lisa of Pop so uh, it's, it's a bit bigger than the Mona Lisa because I've seen the Mona Lisa. Yeah, I've did seen he? the Mona
2: Lisa. It's very, very small. It's diddy, isn't it? It really is small. Anyway, um, I mean, I remember at one point and I knew you think it's the greatest sleeve ever and I'm not disagreeing with that but at one point, you know, I'd be about 15, 16 I painted that on my wall in the bedroom at home and it took me ages to really, really do it properly with the whole flash and everything. Yeah, have you got a photograph of this? I have, yeah. I did Heroes next to it. I need to see this because a mate of mine, I have got a mate, but a mm.
1: mate of mine, he commissioned some artwork for his own gallery and he's a guy called Pete in Sheffield hello Pete and lots of various people did things and Richard Hawley replicated Trapmas replica ah, okay. funnily enough right. and I did Aladdin insane and uh, it looks very much like a sixth form kind of version of Aladdin insane at best but uh, yeah I mean I got the hair right yeah, which was well, good. But, but I spent half of my life looking at that album cover, you know? It was just thrilling. Even when I got, you know, when you get the album and you, you just love it even before you've heard the music. And then, of course, you open it up and it's a gatefold and it's got that legendary photograph in the middle. Yeah. Tony DeFreeze, he worked out this is so brilliant. And if you don't know who Tony DeFreeze is, he ran Main Man, which was Bowie's management company in the early 70s. And, and it kind of ended a little bit unsavoury. But he worked out that if the record company had to pay a lot of money for a sleeve, it would make them sit up and take notice already. So they'd think, right, we've invested all this money
2: in this cover, we're going to have to make this sell. Definitely, it's a really canny move, isn't it? And he could do it, because he had some leeway, of course, with the success of Ziggy and the rest of it. They weren't going to turn him down, were they? They weren't, no. Duffy himself, I mean, he didn't come cheap either, you know. He previously worked on a Pirelli
1: calendar. Mm. OK, I don't even know what that is. Obviously, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was outlandish and very, very costly. So he was already at the top end. Yes. And so uh, with the LP cover, apparently Tony Defries said to him, can you make it expensive? And Brian Duffy said, no problem, love.
2: <laughs> I love that. that. That is just so oh, is. great. I mean, that's a high-end business management, you know? Absolutely. Of course, Bowie, you know, as ever, would have his own input towards this stuff. So he turned up uh, on the day of the shoot with the idea for the iconic lightning bolt. Didn't quite know how to use it. We knew he wanted it in there. Just a case of how do you apply this properly? He thought originally he might just put it across his chest. Yeah. So the idea of like, putting this sort of bolt across his face only kind of happened as the session, as the morning progressed, didn't it? It's strange because like, there is a story. There's so many conspiracies and
1: stories with Bowie, but there is a story that there was a, a rice cooker in the studio that had a tiny little lightning flash on it. Right. In the photographic studio, and Bowie saw it and thought, "This is one of the versions," and yeah. he sort of thought that would be good. And then Pierre La Roche, who's a makeup artist. Yeah. Uh, I love this story as well so uh, they're thinking of how they can best use the lightning bolt on mm. Bowie as you say might go across his chest and then Pierre Laroche he decided to put it on Bowie's face mm. brilliant but what he did originally was he did just a tiny little version of it on his cheek
2: almost like a tattoo yeah and Brian Duffy wasn't happy was he he wasn't happy at all so I really like this so Duffy apparently, did, for whatever reason didn't take particularly kindly to Laroche and he was sort of on his case for a bit I think he's been quoted as been a little bit sharp with him yep. in the studio on the day so supposedly he took the the, uh, paint stick off La Roche and drew a bigger flash, and then they used lipstick for the red to complement the blue across yeah. the face. It's brilliant as well because if you look at the red on the
1: on the flash, then it is really vivid, and so yeah. and you know the light shining off it and everything. But I love it. Apparently, uh, when uh, LaRoche was doing it, Duffy was losing his patience, and he grabbed it off him. He grabbed the mark off him and went no. F-ing like that, like this, and he did the big kind of crude flash across Bowie's face and then, right, fill it in yeah. and stormed off again.
2: <laughs> so it was a pretty fractious kind of uh, relationship, but boy, did it work! Absolutely. And we get to the gatefold, which we just mentioned, and yeah. we should mention the guy called Philip Castle, who was responsible for the airbrushing. So this was another sort of image from a Pirelli calendar of a topless woman, but obviously Bowie in place of that, and he had to wear in underpants basically. But he it's had his him. white undercrackers on, we've seen the photographs, haven't he we? Did so it's him and then from the waist down he's sort of airbrushed out but it's such an iconic image with his hands on his waist and the rest of it they picture the model as well I mean she's in like black leather pants and then the
1: fairy dust that was added afterwards was to merge the black into her body mm. and if you look at it fashion uh, iconography has been used quite a lot by Bowie we'll look at all manner of things like the Bowie cut and all
2: manner of things like that uh, have come from fashion shoots so if you want to find out more about and the background to all that there is a great book as you mentioned before called Duffy Bowie Five Sessions by Kevin Can and Chris Duffy now Kevin
1: Can is a name that will crop oh. up uh, on several occasions throughout this podcast, and uh, with good reason. So let's look at the album then, Bob. Aladdin insane, you oh. know, Personnel, David Bowie, guitar, harmonica, sax, vocals, Mick Ronson, guitar, piano, vocals, genius,
2: Trevor Boulder, bass, guitar, Mick, Woody Mamsey on drums. Okay, so they're the spiders and there are additional personnel, but we have to say the really sort of key ingredient here they sort of changed the landscape of Bowie's music he was Mike Garson. We'll be doing piano. a whole section on Garson, we will be, of course yeah, at some point Piano and synths. Ken Fordham's on there as well doing sax and uh, Brian Wilshaw's sax and flutes. Various backup singers including Jeff McCormack, which we'll go into Warren Peace. Also known as, as, as Warren known.
1: Peace yeah, I mean Mike Garson, I mean it was a, it, the story of Mike Garson's kind of indoctrination into the Bowie setup is quite brilliant and Mick Ronson was heavily involved and yeah. Mike Mike Garson didn't know what the hell was going on. He was a, he was a piano teacher at the time, he?
2: was, it? yeah. He just got the call to come down to this session. You know, we need something. But
1: if you look at lots of Bowie albums, there are musicians who've got the stamp on it. So, like, Hunky Dory is obviously, to an extent, Rick Waitman's record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you look at Ziggy and Man Who Saw The World, then Mick Ronson really, really left his stamp on that. So, uh, Mike Garson, when you heard that all of the magical piano, all the avant-garde work he was doing on it, just mind-blowing
2: really, a it huge is. pivotal part and obviously uh, work with Bowie right through to the end and I think what was interesting about him, obviously he came from this jazz background, didn't know much about rock and roll at all, you know, you look at the Ziggy album, it's basically a rock and roll record isn't it and then Aladdin saying becomes something else, something a little bit more avant-garde much of that is to do not only with Bowie's vision but Mike Garson's piano because he was doing these very unusual jazz textures which I think he tried to play down and Bowie said look no I want you to do the weird stuff that you always do. track one watched that man widely regarded as a move towards like dirty
1: rock and roll sound of the rolling stones so bowie was obviously a fan of the rolling mm. stones and you can that does continue with diamond dogs and particularly rebel rebel a year later there will be some uncomfortable
2: moments for i have to say Charles Shah Murray, who was a big champion of Bowie for the NME. He was, I mean, he was in on the sessions. He was invited to, uh, really part of Bowie's inner circle, but he was invited to a lot of insane sessions and saw them take shape. Yeah. And wasn't always impressed with what he heard, has to be said. There's various points in Charles Sharmory's career where he does
1: kind of diss what proved to be classic and pivotal yeah. albums. So, sorry, Charles, they will get your good stuff and your positive stuff will get mentioned. But he did think that particular track, Watch That Man, was shoddy and rushed and almost like an unfinished mix. That's between him and Roy Carr,
2: also of the Enemy. So, not impressed with that particular That's track. That's right. But hugely popular and influential. Yeah, sort of proto-punk, if you like. I mean, it was detailing all the sort of madness and sort of... Uh, Drug frenzy it was going on in the Ziggy tour, wasn't it, in 72? There's the story about uh, Woody Woodmancy here, isn't there? Yeah. I don't know Woody well, but I've met him a few times and I absolutely love him. He's got an amazing sense of
1: humour and he's not lost that kind of whole side to yeah. him at all. But just being a bit of a Bowie spod, all right, cards on the table, that's why we're both are and we're doing this. I went to see Holy Holy playing live, which is obviously the, the core of it being Tony Visconti and, and Woody Woodmancy and lots of other great musicians around there. And there's a bit in the song where Bowie sings a Benny Goodman fan painted holes in his hand. Yeah. Yeah. And then he hung up to dry, and in the middle of the line, for no good reason, Woody Woodmanty does a drum roll, and it's brilliant. It's just not what you're expecting. Yeah. And I, I, whenever I listen to that tune, I always play air drums because I can't play them properly. Right. And uh, at that point, I go boom da da da, boom da da da, and I'm waiting for it. During the live version by Holy Holy and they didn't do it and I was, at the end of it I just said to Woody that was so good mate and it really was the show was amazing I said just one thing though he went oh what's that I said Dude, Benny Goodman he went oh not you as well <laughs> so that drum roll at that particular point in time I was waiting for it and Woody I didn't get it but you are
2: absolutely forgiven track 2 Aladdin Sane Bob so Aladdin Sane so we're talking about Mike Garth this is where he starts first really making his presence felt isn't it do so... the, the actual title
1: Aladdin Sane 1913 well, to 1938
2: mm. to 197. Question mark. Yep, mm. that's right. So, you know, there are permutations, you know, illusions of the title in the A Lad Insane, literally partly inspired by Bowie's half-brother Terry who was diagnosed uh, schizophrenic we will talk about later on in another part of the series also a tale about it being Aladdin Vain, which is a sort of slightly veiled drug reference if you like but Aladdin saying it is and it fitted perfectly with the sort of image that Bowie was trying to cultivate wasn't it?
1: It most certainly did you know on this album you know particularly Watch That Man that did document the, mm. the craziness of the previous tour that Bowie had done which and, and the album was written largely on that tour Yeah. but there was uh, yeah a lot of madness going on wasn't there?
2: And also partly inspired by uh, Evelyn Wars* book, which is Vile Bodies. So again, you know, playing into that whole madness going on.
1: The story being that he wrote some of the album on, on a bus travelling around America, which mm. would seem like, you know, a, a, obviously a constant journey, such mm. a big journey taking place. But also he famously had a fear of flying, yeah. So he was often on the QET or, or going around on cruise ships, and he wrote a lot of stuff. Do you know, it might take the spiders five hours to get back from New York, and it might take Bowie a week, mm. and so he just had a lot of time to sit and ponder,
2: read books, get inspired by them, and then and then write, you know, yeah, and be absolutely. inspired, man. Also, should know, one of the tracks was written on Gloucester Road, and uh, that was, for me, that was like, you know, when you have these ideas, one of these great magical places, I never even heard of Gloucester Road, I presumed it was in London somewhere. So for me, one of the first things I did when I went to London was just seek it out for the first time. It's really? straight, obviously such an innocuous looking street, you know, but it's part of Bowie mythology and it, that kind of gets ingrained when you're in your teens and you first hear all this stuff. Well, I mean, do you know, I, I actually
1: have held the K West sign. Oh, come on. So we'll probably get to that a little bit later on. Yeah. I've got a photo, I've got evidence and all that kind of stuff and there's a, a great backdrop to it as
2: well. Was so. that the original sign then? Because it wasn't it stolen a few times and then replaced? It was the original oh, one. Oh, come off. Yeah, uh, oh. yeah okay. And uh, yeah, there
1: is a, there's a load of stories about that, but we'll, we'll get to them. Anyway, track three, Driving Saturday, one of my
2: favourite Bowie tunes. I love this tune. It's a weird one for Bowie because it's definitely, you know, has a retro element to it. It's do off, really, essentially, isn't it? But it's a sort of retro futuristic tale. Jagger's in it. He mentions Twiggy as well. Twig know. the Wonder Kid, yeah, yeah, who obviously was on the cover of Pin Ups
1: with him later. And he was released as a single the week before Ladd Insane came out, wasn't it? Yeah. All manner of
2: things. Carl Jung just name dropped in there, yeah, typically of Bowie. That's right. And here's the incredible thing. So at one point, For whatever reason, I know because he was trying to help them out. Bowie offered this to Mott the Hoople and they turned it down. Yeah. And, you know, the great part of the story is, and again,
1: just something that gets reported, he was so... Because the story being that they did a little bit of a different arrangement of it than Bowie had in Mm. mind and they didn't like it and he didn't like it and they turned it down and he was that cross, he shaved his eyebrows off. (laughs) Now, we know that shaving your eyebrows off, because of David Bowie, they don't grow back very quickly. They don't. (laughs) They take forever. And so you see these pictures of Bowie and you think, what's he done now? Where's his (laughs) eyebrows gone, you know? And, uh, yeah, but to, to think it was... In a fit of peak <laughs> is even better. You think, like, OK, I'm going to throw a, I'm gonna throw a curveball in here, my eyebrows are going, but no, it's like... oh,
2: Get the bick out, all off, and go, oh, dear. Oh, they'll be back in a week. Also, it's not the sort of thing you normally do when you're a bit miffed about something, isn't it? You might throw something against a wall, you know, or shout a bit. Well, it's not on my wish list of uh, no. a fit of peaks put it that way. And do you know what? I mean, uh,
1: we were so lucky, Mark Radcliffe and I, we had a programme on Radio 1 in the afternoon, and it was the 25th of October 1999, and David Bowie had agreed to do a session for us. I remember it well. Oh man, you know, uh, we never thought it would happen, but the truth of the matter is that Mark Radcliffe and I, we were the last bastions of Bowie supporters on Radio 1. We were old men, and all the kids were coming through, and the young people, and they weren't particularly bothered about Bowie. And so, it was a mutually beneficial kind of uh, scenario. David gets loads of play and mentions on radio one and and we get to meet david bowie but not only that when we'll talk about different times that we did get to meet yeah him. but on this occasion he came and did a session for us at maid of vale and uh, he was great the usual just such a nice guy so funny so mischievous uh, i had a deerstalker hat with me and he wore that during the session and wow. stuff loads loads of great stuff going on but uh, on the way in for Bowie, Radcliffe and I were on our way out to go and get a sandwich and we bumped into him. I just remember him saying, oh, I believe one of you two uh, would like me to do driving Saturday in the session because I knew he was doing it live. Yeah. And I went, oh, Yeah, if you don't mind, if you don't, if you wouldn't mind, David. Went, yeah, of course we can do that. Anything else you want me to do? And I was like, Oh, and um, what about can't help thinking about me? Radcliffe was like, up, up. And he went, Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, of course we can. I was like, Oh man, just. Pinch me! You wow. know, I mean, just one of uh, my favourite memories of, of David Bowie. That is and terrific. It.
2: And he did the session for us, and it was really, really something else. So track four, Aladdin, saying, Panic in Detroit, again, a, you know, a, an instance of Bowie being affected by his surroundings travelling across America in a bus, supposedly influenced, or, you know, by a conversation with Iggy about the Detroit riots in 67. You can absolutely imagine. It's not a lot to say about the tune. It's a great rock and roll tune, isn't it? Track number five, Cracked Actor, one of the great Bowie oh. tunes. If you're ever lucky enough to see Bowie live, this was one of the great set pieces, wasn't it, where he did his whole Hamlet thing, you know, with the sort of jacket around his shoulders, and he'd be singing, serenading a skull in one hand, just a great piece of theatre, incredible. It was a Cracked Actor documentary, wasn't it? That So the photographs had come across the pond, sorry
1: about the phrase, of-, of Bowie working, doing this long tour in America, and we were just getting snippets here and there, you know, <down> <thread>, <off>, we'd eventually get David live, of course, but the, the Cracked Actor documentary on BBC by Alan Yentov. it showed you this remarkable footage of him doing all the theatrics, he'd take it to the next stage. Mm. You know, so Ziggy was theatrical, we know that. And he'd done the 1980 Floor Show at the Marquee, again, very theatrical. But this was a, a game changer, really, for stadium rock, and he wasn't even in stadiums, it was in theatres, yeah. largely. Yeah, He had cherry pickers and all that kind of stuff. But the version of Cracked Actor where he's doing the Hamlet thing with the skull mm. and the shades and the red uh, military jacket on, it was it was amazing, and it was also really, really annoying for a Bowie fan to be in the UK or Europe I imagine and just looking at it and thinking yeah this is great, why aren't we having that well, you, <laughs> you know, why have you gone over there and told, David what are you doing? Yeah.
2: Well this is one of those uh, great unspoken communal regrets among Bowie fans isn't it that that great show that they did, which we'll be talking about later on in the series, you know the Diamond Dogs and Philly Dogs didn't come over here because mm. it was just one of the the great theatrical rock set pieces. Yeah I'm still upset, you can probably tell I know, I could tell by your face, Time now this is Mike Garson again coming into his own here, Time is a controversial Controversial one isn't it because of uh, several of that. Yeah, the, there's a reference to Oninism looking at. Them. But
1: I, at this point in time, I will say that from time to time, pardon the phrase, it is my favourite Bowie tune. It gets me. It really, really gets to me. So, written in November 1972 in New Orleans, mm. you know, and uh, it was thought to be influenced by Jacques Brel and Brecht and Kurt Vial,
2: yeah, you know, and uh, it's the old stride piano playing, apparently, with a bit of avant-garde thrown in. That's right, and there is a, a reference there to Billy Doll, of course, which is Billy Mercier, who's the uh, original drummer of New York Dolls, who died sadly, he accidentally overdosed. Dolls came out over here for the first time in 72, and he went to a party, and he died that evening, didn't he? People tried to Revive him by giving him coffee, which is the worst thing you could do. That sent him over the edge, actually, yeah. And I
1: believe that they were supposed to be playing the hard rock like the following night in Manchester. Is that right? I could be wrong. Don't Anybody, don't Google me, these facts, because, you know, they they might be loose. But, yeah, I did read somewhere that they were supposed to be playing at the hard rock. Well, it was B&Q, and even that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But definitely up there in my top five David Bowie tunes, yeah. And it does contain a word, which did see it banned by the BBC, Mm. you know, and, and they still... Problematic. Now, I played it on uh, Six Music from time to time. Sometimes you have to change the word, beep it, turn right. it round, or something like that. It's funny though, in America, they didn't mind that particular word, though they did object to the word qualudes. Yeah. Quailudes and Red Wine, which yeah. is again talking about Billy Dole.
2: So, uh, yeah, each to their own. Eh? Absolutely. Track seven, a curious one, The Prettiest Star, because this one dates back to very, very early 1970s. So Bowie had worked this up several times. as a single in March 1970, did nothing. Mark Bolden on guitar, famously. Yep. And it was written for uh, Angie Bowie. Yeah,
1: Produced by Tony Visconti, uh, and he brought uh, Bowie's old friend and rival Mark Boland to play it on the original version, a great guitar lick, which we have to remember that Mick Ronson, one of the great guitarists, completely replicated. Yeah. And Mark, Mark Bolan is often kind of uh, derided, really, in, in the guitar terms. You know, he was a big pop star and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But people say, yeah, he could never really play the guitar, but uh, that is such a, a, a great riff. And if Mick Ronson's going to copy it, then you
2: know you've nailed it. Absolutely, here is proof. So this was supposed to be the big follow-up to uh, Space Oddity, Bowie, the breakthrough star of yeah. 1969. It didn't happen. i I nope. say, it didn't sell. In fact, it didn't sell to the amount of... Well, it sold 800 copies, we think, Yeah. <laughs> which is shocking. Yeah, it is a bit, a bit of a nightmare, that, really. I mean, you know, and there's lots of stops and starts for Bowie
1: throughout his career, isn't there, until it really takes yeah. off, but, yeah, of course. Track eight, Let's Spend the Night Together. There's not a lot to say about it, really. It's yeah. pretty perfunctory, isn't it? Stones cover, probably my least favourite thing on there always was. It's certainly mine, anyway, uh, but I suppose it gave Mick and Keith some money, so that's good, <laughs> eh? Track 9, The Gene Genie. Oh, here we go. Written in the autumn of 1972 in New York, inspired by David Johansson's girlfriend, and by this time, Bowie's girlfriend, mm. Serinda Fox.
2: That's right, and there's a great video. This is probably my favourite Bowie video, to be honest. I think Mick Rock directs it, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. Which is the band against a white backdrop just looking amazing, and Sarinda Fox just uh, cavorting about. At the Mars Hotel. Mm. No coincidence there, then. And uh, it's a
1: play on the author Jean Genet, isn't it? Yeah, and also loosely based on an Iggy Pop sort of kind of character. Now, at the time, obviously I'm a little bit older than you, Bob, but uh, (laughs) when The Suite released Blockbuster, it was a bit like... Aye, aye. What's going on here, then? So, I mean, do you know, let's be fair, and cards on the table, it is an age-old blues... It's been done, you know, since a guitar was invented, really. Hmm. But it was very, very close to home, and very, very close... But it was written by the Pops Vengalis, Mike Chapman and Nicky Chin. Yeah. And they just described the whole episode as a complete coincidence, which it might well have been. Possibly. It could have been, you know. Who knows? Apparently, Chin met Bowie further down the line. Apparently, Bowie's initial reaction was to call him a, "Mm -mm,"
2: followed by a hug, followed by the word, congratulations. (laughs) So this made number two. So, you know, Bowie's a star again. And, of course, famously, his appearance on Top of the Pops, presumed missing for many, many decades, was suddenly rediscovered by one of the cameraman who filmed it, who used to keep his own little personal archive, way after the BBC had wiped everything. Well, this is the beauty
1: of it. I mean, because the guy involved, the guy who had it in his attic, he was convinced to let it go eventually. He apparently was the fella who invented the... It's a multiple kind of scenario. So you would see, like, loads of different Bowie faces, you know? So, Mm. uh, like a kaleidoscope, almost. But he invented that technique, I believe. And that's why he kept it. It was almost like his showreel. So, yeah, thank God for that. You know, I mean, and when it surfaced, it was like... Hoorah, you know? And, Is, there's, and there's more that has been lost in the past with stories right. that we know about. And, we'll and it's an to amazing from. piece
2: of work because they're all playing live, aren't they? It's just a oh, great it's band. It's so great. Track 10, Lady Grinning Soul. Yeah, supposedly inspired by a meeting with uh, Claudia Lanier who was an American soul singer, supposedly also involved with Mick Jagger and was the inspiration for Brown Sugar, amongst yep. other things. She'd work with Tina Turner and Joe Cocker and all kind of people, yeah. actually, so, yeah. Mike Darson said of the tune, he said, a bit of a sort of Chopin list type of attitude to the late 1800s yeah
1: and I, um, I I think I think it's fair to say that it's a bit underrated this song it's a, it's a beautiful song and it, and it closes the album and you know by that time God, I don't know maybe most people didn't get to it yeah. as they should have
2: done you know but I mean I think it's a really really wonderful song it is it's the one that everybody forgets as you say but it's a, you know an unforgettable album having said that forgets so what I don't know what was it
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley.
2: So A is also for A Clockwork Orange.
1: Oh. Uh, yeah, a really important publication for Davy Bowie, published in 1962, written by Anthony Burgess, mm-hmm. whilst he was living in Hove. And the inspiration for the dystopian story of society's breakdown came from an incident which saw his first wife being beat up by a group of drunken American servicemen during World War II, after which she
2: miscarried. I know, it's atrocious, isn't it? It's tragic. Also, he'd served in the army, hadn't he, uh, yeah. Anthony Burgess? He'd come back, he'd also noticed proliferation of like youthful gangs on the streets. Mm. Britain had changed a lot and he just felt there was this sort of sense of unease and dystopia coming in. Yeah, of course,
1: and, and the film was made, so the the book caused a stir, but it was one of those films, I mean, at the time, I was just I was a young, young lad, there was no way I was going to get anywhere near it in the cinema, yeah. uh, but it was the one that everybody talked about. I remember kids dressing up like the Droogs, right. walking around with the bowler hats and
2: the white boiler suits on and all that kind yeah. of stuff, so it had a cultural impact. Definitely, and it was notorious, wasn't it? I remember I had to wait until probably about the mid-80s, where I got my copy in a place in Manchester, a big old place called Affleck's Palace. There's a guy there selling, you know, the old video copies of uh, Clockwork Orange. I thought, wow, you yeah. see this at last for the first time. Oh, yeah, it was a real holy grail. And there's a few different explanations
1: of the title. The most believable one that we could hear anyway, uh, just looking through them all, was a phrase
2: overheard by Burgess in a pub, mm. which is as queer as a Clockwork Orange. I did see him interviewed at one point also saying that it was a metaphor for, you know, the sort of goodness and innocence of youth, you know, this orange, full of this goodness and juice and sloth slowly being sort of tarnished right. by society at the same yeah. time. So there's various connotations of it. I did meet Burgess once, actually. Really? He was doing a book signing in Manchester, and I went up and had a little chat with him, a lovely bloke. He couldn't stop talking about me earring, which I had at the time. It really annoyed me, because I wanted to talk about Clockwork Orange.
1: Yeah, a bit uh, diffusing the situation
2: yeah. there, probably. I mean, if you imagine, probably
1: 90% of the people who spoke to him probably did want to speak about yeah. Clockwork Orange, so he's, he's going to hone in
2: on your earring, mate. You know, from the, the whole image thing, of course, you know, Bowie was obsessed with the droogs as well. I thought it's a great kind of visual image, very iconic. And lyrically too, Suffragette City, you think about, hey, Drew, you don't crash here, all that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the spiders' outfits were influenced by the Drugs, weren't they, in Kubrick's film?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if we can get hold of Woody Woodmansey at some point for an interview, which I'm sure we will, actually, uh, then he had a lot of problems with the costumes that were being thrown around at various mm. points for the spiders. But it's also been alleged that Bowie was considering wearing a bowler hat on stage, like Alex in the film, right. you know, uh, which would have taken it one step too far. They even came on to Beethoven's Ninth, didn't yeah. they? I mean, it was taken from the soundtrack of yes. A Clockwork Orange.
2: And that stayed for a long time, so even Bowie's final show at Hammersmith Odeon in 73, that was the opening music, the great big intro. It was. Pivotal.
1: The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
2: So A is famously for the Arts Lab also, Bob. It is. So Bowie set up the Beckenham Arts Lab in 1969, partly modelled on a previous Arts Lab, wasn't it, on uh, Drury Lane in London, set up in 67 by a guy called Jim Haynes. Yeah. Various other things going on across the world in Amsterdam and Paris and Sydney with a soft-floor cinema gallery and in a different building altogether, a theatre.
1: Yeah, and Bowie used to attend, didn't he? He was a fan of it. And, you know, I mean, you talk about a soft-floor cinema. We're wondering what that was. It's probably beanbags, man. Well, I'm guessing so. To yeah. so add to the chill and all that Mm, kind of stuff but you know but yeah. so he attended the Arts Lab and he did some mime in there and he used to rehearse in there. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's first joint artwork, Build Around that visited there Mm. too. So he
2: had a lot of credibility and and was was trendy Absolutely, so both said right I'll have a bit of this and like a lot of, stuff, you know, one of many things that Bowie kind of borrowed from certain things and uh, put to his own use so he wanted to start his own Arts Lab in Beckenham which probably wasn't the most obvious choice for an Arts Lab Well there was a reason for it, he'd fallen for a lady called Mary Finnegan who's got her own book, which we'll talk about later. Uh,
1: but she lived in Beckenham. She was aged 22. Now, if you think about Bowie's career up to this point, I mean, he's done all manner of things, and he's yeah. still living with his parents, which is a, a real R blast kind I know, of scenario, uh, isn't uh, it? But not for long. He met Mary Finnegan. They fell for each other. Mm. Her story is
2: great. As I say, there is a book about it, and we'll go into more detail about that a little bit later on in the uh, in the podcast. That's right. So Bowie takes over an upstairs room in the Three Tons pub. It's a sort of pivotal venue, isn't it, in early Bowie-hood? It is. On the 4th of May 19th, 1969, the Beckenham Arts Lab is born, finally. Yeah, Bowie performs like an acoustic set and also acts as the anchor
1: man and is a guy called Tim Hollier with a Psychedelic Liquid Light Show, which was provided by Barry Lowe, mm. which is a great name. And uh, Founder members of the Art Lab being Bowie
2: yeah. and his girlfriend Mary Finnegan and Barry and Christina Jackson. Yeah, so on that first night you've got 50 people in the audience. Bowie makes a £10 profit, apparently. Well, I'm guessing it wasn't even about profit. Let's just get bums on seats. Can we start a scene here? Here in unlikely Beckenham.
1: No, but it soon grew to two hundred people, so it probably was a bit more about profit at that point in time, (laughs) and nothing wrong with that at all. And uh, yeah, one particularly noteworthy event on Thursday, the nineteenth of March, nineteen sixty-nine, Bowie
2: celebrates his stag night at the Arts Lab, and the following day. He got wed. I didn't realise people actually did that because like you see on Coronation Street, they have the big stag booze up, don't they? And then they get married the next day rather than like a week later. But well, people really did it. Yeah,
1: that's because people go to Prague now and get completely wasted <laughs> for a week and then you're not going to turn up to your wedding. It's like, you know, in my day, you know, I am an old timer. Oh. But yes, you would go out and you'd have a few pints with your mates and get married the next day. Right. But now, that, that's not good enough for the kids, is it? Times have changed so no, much. they, they go abseiling and
2: stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> <and> <laughs> so, not while not, <laughs> string, Drinking. Oh, Obviously, no. No, yeah. drink responsibly. Absolutely. So, of course, having the Arts Lab, this convenient venue also gives Bowie the opportunity to start trialling the music. They ended up on uh, what became Space Oddity, if yeah. you like. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it includes memory of a free festival, which is the tale of an event organised by the Arts Lab, wasn't it? A Croydon Road Recreation Centre mm-hmm. on the 16th of August, 1969. A great bill. So it was like noon till eight o'clock. Bridget St John, she uh, appeared at it. Lionel Bart. Now, Bowie was a big fan of Lionel Bart's mm, work, wasn't he? Yeah. Oliver and all that. Bowie was mad on all that yes. stuff. So to get him was quite quite a coup, really, a strange one. Amory Kane, Keith Christmas, who works with Bowie, the Straubs, who, uh, who did a lot of cross-pollination with Bowie yeah, early yeah. on. But 3,000 people turned up, didn't they? But John Peel didn't. No, he
2: didn't. And neither the Junior's Eyes. Uh, Another band that Bowie yeah. was cross-pollinating. I love this, though. Yeah. So, other stuff going on that day. Brian Moore and Barbara uh, Cole's Puppet Theatre. It was an exotic tea stall, mm. Mm. a Tibetan shop, inevitably, a jewellery and ceramic stall, and I love this,
1: an assault course for kids. Yeah, oh, no, it terrific. was. And, uh, and, and for the documentation that you look about the actual event, it said that Bowie pulled it off, worked really hard, but it was just like 11 days before that he'd lost his dad. And yeah. he, was, he was in pieces very, very close to his dad. And so he got through it, and the song came out the other end of it. Mm. And let's not forget, Bob, who took over from Bowie when he jumped ship from the Arts Lab? That's right. Steve Nice, also known as Steve Harley, Cockney Rebel. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well that will be much appreciated. In the next episode. Brixton, Bromley, Mark Boland, Sid Barrett, and Bowie Net.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth. So you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FBP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals.
0: Save